Hey there, listeners of Illusion. We want to do a special episode about what Nightmare means to the fans. With that in mind, we decided to put together a competition. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning is to send us a voice recording telling us some of your fondest memories of the show and what it means to you. You can either send your recordings by email to podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk using the subject Nightmare Memories, or you can send us a voice message through our Spotify page. Please note that whilst we'll accept recordings of any length by email, Spotify voice messages are limited to one minute long. We'll pick our favourites and play them on the podcast and one entry chosen at random will win the grand prize. A complete set of the official Nightmare Choose Your Own Adventure books by Dave Morris, including the very rare Lord Fears Domain. A physical copy of Peter Palsford's unofficial book Nightmare Live, The File of Freedom. A book containing copies of the first nine issues of the Eye Shield, thanks to Paul McIntosh for granting us permission. The Nightmare Live Handbook, a limited edition book given only to backers of the original Nightmare Live Kickstarter campaign. And to top it off, we'll be sending you a signed photo of Nightmare actress Natasha Pope. The closing date for the competition is August the 31st. Any entries received after that will not be eligible to win, but may still be used in the podcast. Please be aware that the Dave Morris books have been sourced from various second-hand sellers, and whilst they're all complete, there's a certain amount of wear and tear. Quite frankly, the fact we managed to get the copy of Lord Fizz Domain that didn't already have the puzzles filled in is nothing short of amazing. We look forward to hearing from you, and good luck! You hear me okay, I take it. Oh, yeah. No. Far oh. louder than anybody would ever want to hear your voice. Welcome, listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, which seems a peculiar sort of name. And I'm Martin O'Donoghue, which seems to be my name. Today we're looking at Series 4, Episode 5. It's originally broadcast on CITV on October the 5th, 1990. Show Me Heaven by Maria McKee was the number one single at the time. And our number one film was the romance, thriller, comedy, supernatural horror, Ghost. I want to learn it. I'm not leaving until you teach me. Get off! No. Get off! You stubborn ball. The film was directed by Jerry Zucker and starred Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, Tony Goldwyn and Whoopi Goldberg in a performance that netted her the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. I reckon Ghost was um, probably the moment when Whoopi actually turned into a superstar. She'd been gaining a lot of popularity throughout the late 1980s, especially in Star Trek The Next Generation. But I think Ghost was such a huge production and her character was so central to it, everyone really started talking about her. She had already won a Best Actress Oscar for The Colour Purple. Ghost is one of those 
those films that's got everything. It's genuinely funny. It's genuinely tragic. It's a likable film. I just don't agree with anybody who says it's a great film. I mean, there was an awful lot of over-the-top praise for it um, at the time, and I don't feel any hatred in my heart for it or anything like that. It's just uh, watch it once, watch it twice. Probably not going to be terribly fussed if you never watch it again. It's interesting the fact it's directed by um, Jerry Zucker, who at this point was probably best known for the Naked Gun and Airplane films. He definitely has a certain talent that Zucker. Comedy was uh, probably his best realm rather than drama, but he managed to do a bit of both there. You got much to say about Show Me Heaven? It was a song. It's one of those songs where everyone only really knows one line. Temporal Discussion. Temporal Discussion. Bringing you the latest news from 1990. The Jewish Defense League's founder, Mir Kahane, was uh, assassinated delivering a speech in which he urged American Jews to move to Israel while they still had the opportunity. Because like so many Zionists, got stress here, I am Jewish, but I am absolutely not a Zionist, okay? Um, but like, with so many Zionists, he was absolutely convinced um, that the next Holocaust was just weeks away. Yeah, and he was uh, adamant that Jews armed themselves, weren't they? He was. Every Jew a point twenty two, I think it was. That is the exact phrase he used, a point twenty two rifle. El Said Nosair was a US citizen of Egyptian extraction, um, and he was the killer. He was initially found not guilty, funnily enough, but later was found guilty in a US district court following his participation in the uh, World Trade Center attack of nineteen ninety-three. Due to the federal indictment's inclusion of the murder as a component inverted commas of the claimed terrorist conspiracy prosecutors were actually able to secure a new trial getting around double jeopardy laws eventually uh, El Said was given a life sentence and uh, later broke silence to federal officials speaking for myself of Kahane I really detested him I thought he aborted everything that was wrong with the idea of Zionism in particular his desperation to get all Jews worldwide into Israel was absolute madness for various reasons not least of which is there was nowhere near enough enough space for all of us inside Israel's boundaries. Indeed, there still isn't today. I've always been anti-Zionist because I believe that dragging all Jews into one country that's separated off from the rest of humanity is sort of, by definition, anti-Semitism. It's also racist in other forms because it requires treating any other races inside the boundaries of this country to be treated as second-class citizens. And that was something that Kahane was keenly aware of, and that's why he called for Jews globally to head for Israel, because it would boost the Jewish numbers at election time. Didn't have a guy idea where he was going to put all of them though just you know even if every single square inch of israel had a house on it there just wouldn't be enough for 35 million jews i don't as a rule approve of assassination let me just mention but he was a nasty piece of work the herald newspaper in melbourne australia was published for the very last time as a separate newspaper after 150 years it was merged with its sister paper the sun news pictorial it was a very important newspaper in australia staying in australia for a moment australian rugby league player nathan peets was born on this day and moving over to the United States, the film Henry and June became the first to be given an NC-17 rating, the equivalent of an 18 certificate in the UK. And now time turns. The recording light burns. Time out is gone. The podcast is on. Greetings. If you would a dungeon master, swallow fear and scorn disaster. There you see there's always a place for poetry and literature here in Nightmare Castle, which reminds me, the pickle, the book of the quests. We need reminding just who is attempting to do what. Questing with us today are Harry, Martin, James, and of course, their dungeoneer, 
Alistair. The team hailed from Woodbridge and Suffolk, just like they did last week, and they've been questing for the shield for 35 minutes and are currently in the middle of level two. They carry a bar of goals and have no magic. Can I just point out that we're five episodes into the series and we're only on our second team? Yes. It's not exactly lightning fast stuff, is it? So I'm not sure if that means that the teams have been good so far. or if... Well, they have both got to level three, but I do think it's not particularly difficult to get to level three. To a certain degree, you can be almost on autopilot for the first half of the quest, and there doesn't seem to be anything particularly difficult to get past. One thing that fans have often complained of down the years was that Nightmare did seem to get easier as the years passed, and I think there is an element to that at play here. In the first couple of seasons, every room, or close to every room had a floor puzzle in it so you could get into serious trouble at any moment now there's an awful lot of plot building going on in a lot of the early locations and no actual floor puzzles in it so if you do get into trouble you won't know the consequences of it until quite a bit later so the quests are getting longer but probably as much because they're getting easier is because the teams are getting better having said that there are a couple of new floor puzzles and what i like to term action challenges in series three two of them we're getting in this episode I think this is probably the best episode so far. Yeah. It's entirely because of those two scenes, but we'll get to them when we get to them. Ah, I suppose you want to know what I'm selling. Well, I'm afraid that depends on what you're buying. And talking of buying, what are you paying? Alistair is facing Merlin in a room. Um, I can't really say much more for it apart from that. Really. But the wizard is sitting at a wooden table and today is acting as a peddler. I do feel that Merlin's role has kind of been somewhat diminished in this series. Well, I was wondering if it's because of John Woodnut's advancing age. I mean, you could argue that um, that makes him more suited to playing as, as like dodgy old sorcerer. He doesn't seem any less sprightly to me now than he did a year earlier. So I, I don't think it's that. I think it's just uh, they're trying to uh, move away at this point from being derivative of the Arthurian legend. So they, they inevitably they try to reduce the role of Merlin and Mogdred a bit. But Alistair shows the bar of gold that he's got and Merlin informs him that it is exactly the price of each object on the table. Merlin is definitely right about one thing here. I do not believe that that gold is exactly the price of these objects, all of which clearly must have fallen off the back of a horse and cart. It is rather unsettling to see the so-called good wizard having a Del Boy moment like this, but uh, it's definitely a bit of Del Boy patter that. What a coincidence! Yeah, right. So Merlin shows Alistair what appears to be an ordinary magnifying glass. It's definitely not a spy glass that was to be introduced the following year. But at that price, it can't be ordinary. He tells us nothing else whatsoever about it, so it's pretty safe to assume we should skip that one. Uh, he then shows Alistair a slipper that he claims was once owned by Mercury, presumably referring to the Roman god, and informs Alistair that it is imbued with the spell run. should mention at this point, Alistair seems to be fidgeting behind his ear while this is going on, and I wonder if he's having trouble with his earpiece again, as he seemed to be in the previous episode. Yeah, I would, I think so. It's clearly a problem they never really solved for him, so maybe that is why he seemed to be a bit ratty throughout the quest. <laughs> Lastly, Merlin shows Alistair something that we can't actually see, because the shot has been framed really stupidly, so that we're looking at the scene through the magic mirror behind the advisors, and Alistair is actually blocking the view of the object. Merlin lifts something that apparently is pretty heavy and claims that it's a weapon that was once wielded by Sir Cuthbert Danro, aka Cuthbert the Unsteady. I love the look of disgruntlement on Merlin's face when Alistair says the magnifying glass is a con right in front of him. Alistair, master of diplomacy, he certainly isn't. <laughs> Cuthbert the Unsteady seems to be an indicator that the weapon is too difficult to wield. The name, 
bit of history here for you. Look, pay attention, all you cunning history buffs, all, all two of you. There never appears to be a parody of Ethelred the Unready, who was an Anglo-Saxon king whose two-part reign was ruined by wars with Svein Forkbeard, the Viking king of Denmark. Unready in Old English, uh, people think it means unprepared. It, it actually didn't mean that. It meant ill-advised. Well, Ethelred actually means well-advised. So Ethelred the Unready was meant as a deliberate contradiction in terms. You could therefore say Cuthbert the Unsteady is also something to do contradiction in terms because Cuthbert in Old English actually means brilliant. Brilliant the Unsteady. Yeah, so that's also somewhat contradictory. The team discuss what to take. Harry suggests the magnifying glass but is outvoted by his teammates who choose the slipper and the spell instead. I think it's definitely hinted that they should take the slipper by the fact he emphasises that there is a spell attached to it. There is a slightly con aspect about this which is it's an object and it's a spell so you end up getting both counted against you. You can't take more than two objects but if you don't take this object you can't take the spell but the spell still counts against your limited three on them as well. They choose the slipper and with it in hand Alistair leads the chamber through some rather awkward manoeuvring. Off you go then, off you go, go away with your slipper. Okay. Supplies and equipment, equipment supplies. Right, Alistair sidesteps to your right please. Oh, stop. Turn a little to your left. Okay, a side step to your right. Right, walk, walk forwards. A little to your left. Okay. One a side to step. Your left. One side step to your left. That's it. And oh. another. No, it's not really a side step. Walk forward. Walk forward. No. Turn to your left a little. Right, walk, walk forward. forward. Look at Merlin whilst um, Alistair's walking away and making such a pig's ear of walking to the door. He looks utterly bewildered. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a... Where am I? You're in a room. It looks like it's, it's falling another, to bits. It's another drawbridge. And it looks like there's another drawbridge in front of you with some water below it. Uh, a face I, has appeared on the drawbridge. <laughs> Looks like it may be another door monster, Master. Time for the calling, I think. Yes, but do they remember the right words? So much to remember, and such a short time to do it in. Fortunately, the team do remember the calling. Eventually. Alistair, <laughs> say true or false, false or true, open up and let us through. True or false, false or true. Open up and let us through. Hmm. This one, I believe, is called Dorcas. Not quite as miserable as Doris, but not to laugh a minute either. Oh, weariness. Oh, despair. Oh, the bitter pill of self-delusion. Ah, then. But it would be a door. Always standing in the way of a draft. Even the war monsters in season one got more sort of variation of dialogue than the door monsters are getting here. Greenland is called the Emerald Isle. True or false? And the answer false. Um, the Emerald Isle is the nickname for Ireland, although you do sometimes wonder why, given the national colour of Ireland, is actually blue, as we've discussed before. And indeed, you may wonder why Greenland is so called when it's frequently covered in snow. The legend is that Eric the Red found a habitable part of the land and called it Greenland to trick more people into settling there. Eve gave Adam the apple. That's why only men have Adam's apples. True or false? 
For the purpose of this riddle, the answer is false. That is where the term Adam's apple comes from. Um, according to some versions of the Garden of Eden story, Eve gave Adam the apple, he tasted it, and the chunk supposedly caught in his throat. Mm. And by that, they assume that's why men have more protruding larynxes than women do. Actually, it's just because men's larynxes are larger and therefore stand out more. That's also why men's voices break and women's voices don't really break. So the answer is actually true then? In a manner of speaking, yeah. It is where the phrase Adam's apple comes from. It's not literally true in that because Adam got a bit of apple caught in his throat, as a result, men actually have a bit of apple stuck in the front of all of their throat. The smallest country in the world is the Vatican City. True or false? Now, this depends on what you class as a country. Do you class a micronation as a country, for instance? Officially, um, the United Nations does. Um, whether it would have been true at the time, I'm actually, uh, well, when is it set? Um, if whether it was true uh, at the start of the 13th century, I don't know. Uh, what I can say is the Vatican City is the smallest country in the world by a hefty margin. The Vatican is actually less than half a square kilometre. So the Vatican City is 44 hectares, whereas Molossia, which is a micronation in Nevada, and that's five hectares. Is that actually recognised as a nation by the United Nations? Because if it's not, it probably wouldn't count. If you're going to go with those sorts of things where just anybody has declared themselves to be a nation, you might as well go with Sealand. Is Molossia recognised by the UN? No, okay, it's self-proclaimed. Yeah, you've got to be careful of that. There has to be some kind of international recognition of it. This is interesting. The two official languages spoken in Molossia are US English and Esperanto. Ah, right. All of those scenes in Red Dwarf are suddenly bouncing off the top of my mind. Yeah. The second smallest country on the world, by the way, is Monte Carlo or Monaco. That's over two square kilometres. Monte Carlo is basically just a racetrack. <laughs> Yes. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, it has over 36,000 population compared with the 518 in the Vatican. So there's a bit of a leap from one <laughs> to two here, you might say. We'd like to thank Jake Collins for providing the voice of Doris today. Oh dear, oh dear me, truth will open, truth will out. <laughs> well done, team. The team score three at three and the drawbridge opens. Alistair ventures into the resulting portal. What follows is a long passive path sequence through Dunkley Wood, including Pickle warning the team that Ariadne has built her lair in the area and informing them that they must find the Dunswater in order to get back into level two. There's exactly the same video sequence as in the first quest, thus confirming that the reflector in the first quest was utterly superfluous, but also the same dialogue from Pickle, almost word for word. I remember at this point, I was actually getting really frustrated back in 1990. Can't you just do something, just say something different? please everybody yeah i can't suspend my disbelief in the face of this much recycling appears to be the door or some kind of box in front of you carry on walking it looks like the ice shield might be guiding us be careful <laughs> right alistair you appear to be in a clearing um is it a spider's web yeah it looks it like it's a spider's leg there's um a tree to your left um um, do you think we should go through that hollow in the tree? Yeah, it looks like a hollow in the tree. Extreme caution, team. You're nearing Ariadne's lair. The strands of her web are extremely sticky. If Alistair touches one, he'll be trapped forever. I like Ariadne's lair. In itself, there's no problem with it, but just 
my kingdom for something different to happen. <laughs> the team begin to move Alistair towards the hole in the tree, but before he can get there, Ariadne looms into view. Stop. Uh -oh. Stop. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Alice, a spider coming. Oh, walk forward, Alice. Walk forward. Turn a little to your left. Walk forward. A little panicked, but nowhere near as bad as they have been. The team get Alistair into the tree. Ariadne seems to get bomb-fused disease here because she suddenly takes a completely unexplicable step backwards just as she gets close to Alistair. It's like uh, the fuse is growing backwards on a bomb again. I thought we'd moved on from those days after the redesign in season three. Alistair, you're in a room, there seems to be a tree stump to your right and there's a spider's web above you. Through the uh, hole in the tree, they arrive in uh, the TARDIS, <laughs> Ariadne's lair, much, much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Wasting no further time, at least not for the moment, the team guide Alistair to the tree stump so that they can see what's on it. And there's a wheel of cheese and a bar of gold. Both are taken and the moment the cheese is knapsacked. Take both of them. Quickly. Quickly. Hurry. Hurry, Alistair. In extreme Hurry. danger, the queen of the arachnids. Right. You need oh, speed oh, 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 to escape oh, 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 oh. here, team. Sp Spellcasting, run. Come on, quickly. Spellcasting. R U N The following passive path through the woods is sped up greatly in an attempt to make it seem like Alistair is moving really fast. What it actually looks like is like the video footage has been sped up greatly. Yeah, in, in other words, just like when the speed spell was cast in the Goblin Corridors late in season three. Oh, did you notice when they cast the spell, by the way, it's the old spell casting sound effect from the first two seasons. With I the did notice that, rather yeah. Than the, rather than the one from season three. That's quite nostalgic. Mm. Snowcat, if you're listening, I told you that they brought that spell casting effect back in season four a, a few years ago. You didn't believe me. <laughs> yeah. So a bit of triumph there. That's cheered me up very, very slightly. <laughs> uh, and they reach the Dunswater. Alistair, you look like you're on a bank of a moat. There's a castle opposite and a man sitting in a boat. Deep is the Dunswater and cold. The fare for crossing is silver or gold. Alistair, say to him, we'll give you this gold if you take us across the moat. If you take us across Dunswater, I'll give you this bar of gold. Uh, uh. I love the way this scene looks. It's perfectly scenic. Still not too sure about the purplish haze that's been added to things, but uh, in isolation, I think that would actually be really quite cool. Now, what is the boatman doing here, Mr. H? Well, he's changed his feed for the crossing because it used to be silver and gold, but now he's changed it to silver or gold. So I'm thinking that this is part of a national initiative to help combat the cost of living crisis, maybe. Maybe. Well, I'm just not sure he wouldn't be affected by a cost of living crisis, especially when you consider that there won't be many people very often wanted to cross the Dunswater. Of course, today, uh, with inflation being what it is, the boatman would be charging uh, about four gold bars and three silver bars to get across. So fortunately, yes, Alistair has the goals that he's already surrendered, but now take it back from Ariadne. Do you think maybe Ariadne stole it from Merlin? Maybe. Just a little um, subplot for somebody to write into a fanfic there, I think. Just wandered up behind him and went, yoink! All she has to do is just fire a web, sort of Spider-Man style, and take it away from him and Marilyn probably doesn't even notice until after it's gone right, right. could you climb into the boat well done you're in your boat at the moment Alistair mm, this boatman is a surly beast master I wouldn't want to face him without the fare yes I don't think you could swim this lake either there's something horribly unnatural about it and we get the same thing about the 
boatmen and the water looking yeah. unnatural. They get quite a lot of mileage out of this rowing boat in the years ahead, it should be mentioned. I mean, in particular, in, in season seven and eight, it's used as the main form of transport to ship dungeoneers through the mire, which is a sort of vast on subterranean sewer. I'm not sure how healthy it is to travel through, but if you wanted to win the nightmare, that was what you had to do in the final couple of seasons. Alistair? Yeah? You're coming into more on the um, in the castle banks in the boat. All right. Hey, Harry, that's what Paul Andre Green Um, Alistair? Yes, I think he's ordering you, you to get, get out. out. But to die um, I wish okay. The boat pulls into more, and team advise Alistair to get out, but they don't actually tell him which side. Really, really focused guidance they're giving here. This reminds me of one time. Do you remember the old slam door trains that they used to have before they had, you know, the ones where you have to press the button or whatever? So this reminds me of a time I was going up to London and there was me and some other bloke in the carriage and he'd fallen asleep and the train stopped between stations, probably at a signal or something as they do. He suddenly wakes up, looks around panicked, gets up and goes out the door. And then he comes back in, he looks at me and says, you probably think I'm really stupid, don't you? Then he went out the other door. (laughs) So the answer is yes. (laughs) 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 So a lot of kids today, it will sound absolutely alien, but back in, up until the end of the 1980s, most train carriages, they actually had doors that pretty much like car doors. um, And they opened outwards. So um, if you're not careful, you can have hitting somebody in the face with it as they're walking past along the platform. Up until the early 2000s, they had them this end. Not the trains that I used at that time. I, I, they'd all had the sort of the press button and it would slide open. Yeah, but to be fair, we are almost opposite ends of the country. You're a bit primitive, you South Coast people, aren't you? Yeah. You notice uh, when Alistair gets out, although the water side is a, is a solid stone construction in the picture, Alistair's feet make this really loud wooden clanking sound. Like, Where are we? don't know. Stone. I'm sort of... <laughs> Stone. Yeah. They were going to sort that out in the dub. That's it. That's it. Well done. Right, we'll keep the eye shield up. Okay, we're going through a door here. Right, we've just come to the door handle. Right. <laughs> the passive path takes Alistair to the top of a set of steps, and Trey Guard gives the same speech. He gave team one about finding the way down to level three, despite the fact it's right in front of them, and yada, yada, yada. I genuinely was getting really quite angry now at this point. I'm genuinely getting angry. The entire second half of level two has been an exact rerun of the first quest. Traegard and Pickle giving the same speeches as if they haven't already seen this is insulting. And actually getting Traegard to say, if you can find it again, when the staircase is right in front of them again, just get knotted, okay? Just get knotted. I'm not having this. I've got big, big problems with season four, and the repetition is the main problem. I hate having to sit through the first two levels in particular. Uh, thankfully, things are about to change quite dramatically. And now listen, teams. That which we call level three of the greater dungeon must lie somewhere below this fortress. And there must be some way down to it, if only you can find it. Uh, Alistair, um, c- can you see some steps down? No. 
Well, can you try walking forward? Um, I think it looks like the ice shield might be guiding us. What about those passages? Are there windows, are they? Yeah. yeah I it looks think... like there's some doors below us. Oh, there's a... Mm. There, there's some oh, doors. Oh, it's taken... No, it's not. Steps are going down into... Looks like a doorway or a door. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, we're going to Warning, stay right where you are. You see, we can see you, but we can't see what you're standing on. Look down beneath the helmet and tell us what you see. Um, I can see some flagstones with two red ones to my left and right. Ah, yes, of course. It's a transporter pad. Step right for one journey. Step left for another. And don't forget, Alistair, to move back into the centre or you'll find yourself going on a longer journey than you'd intended. Alistair has found himself in a curious chamber. The first big surprise of the, uh, yeah, of the series. Yeah, because it's actually something different. He's standing facing the camera on a high platform connected to the wall on screen left. Opposite him, screen right, is a similar slightly lower empty platform and below him is another empty platform. And opposite that, on screen right, is a further platform. This one, however, is occupied by a large knight swinging his sword. There are a couple of large pits below, and in the background, there's a lovely ethereal waterfall that we've mentioned a couple of episodes back. The two red flagstones Alistair mentions have patterns on them involving wavy lines, although the patterns themselves don't appear to be relevant. I always found this very confusing. I didn't actually. I think it was possible to overcomplicate some getting out of it um but it's actually quite straightforward that's the thing i found it very confusing when i was seven years old because i didn't really think that it would be as simple as step left to go left and step right to go right it's noticeable that the best locations in season four are actually brilliant but they're still the inventions of david rowe and not the location filmed ones. And I think that is the big lesson to be had from this. This is a really neat, really imaginative little floor puzzle and a very striking chamber to look at. Finally escaped from the purple paint job, you might notice as well, which is <laughs> yes. very refreshing. And the implication seeing the magic waterfall cavern in the background is that we can't be far from the falling bridge, which gives mm. a kind of a rather nice sort of interconnected feel um, that the dungeon sometimes loses. But this is actually really neat, this whole chamber. I, I really enjoy seeing it and, and seeing teams work their way through it i overcomplicated this as a kid but not half as much as the team do here they do seem to dwell a bit too much and once again they do start bickering too easily mm. uh which is a shame because uh once they actually get going they handle it reasonably well you get the feeling this team do not like each other if sidestep kind of... side to the right one but try and stay in the center of the pattern what, so um, I sidestep onto the right one in the middle? Yeah, yes. and stay in the middle of the flagstone. Actually, means go back to the centre square. Mm, that's mm. closer to the truth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alistair, Alistair sidestep right, right and then left okay. and then onto back the to the white one. Back onto the white one quickly. Okay, and back. After completing the action, Alistair appears on the empty platform on screen right. The team discuss the next move, and of course, they all start talking at once again. Uh, of Alistair's... course, of course they do. Alistair's clearly getting confused, but eventually they compose themselves and instruct him to use the left flagstone. There appears to be a knight swimming, swimming. Uh, swinging his sword below you on another ledge. There's a, what? There's a knight swinging his sword on the ledge below you. Alistair, are there any tiles on the ledge you're on? Yeah. 
If you right. could sidestep to your left one and then back again quickly. No, because look. No, oh, not yet. No, not no, yet. No, 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 back, back, back. Because look, we've gone down right that way. Then if we go down yeah, left yeah, again, so do it left. Yes. That, and then Are you sure? Both feet onto your left one and then back again quickly. Alistair, you're actually opposite that ledge now, below the, the first one. After more considered discussion and an insistence by Trainguard that they must make a decision, eventually the team choose the correct flagstone. Alistair avoids the night and emerges next to the door. Yeah, do you notice how Alistair dematerializes after taking the first side step here rather than after the step back? I'm sure there's some technical reason why it works that way on this one, but I've never been completely sure what it is. There's clearly a blue cloth being held up right next to him there. I can't quite figure out exactly why they need to do that for when he pseudo materializes i mean you've got to remember all the way through this alistair is actually staying in exactly the same position all the time he's even moving left right but it's still the same flagstones really that he's standing on not completely sure why they need to position things differently for the final one right next to the exit but for whatever reason he disappears immediately rather than after taking the step backwards could just be a mistake i don't know it happens again in later quests as well i'm sure there's some technical reason why they had to do that but i'm not sure what it was what i can say is is I'm pretty sure that if they had chosen to take the left path every time they would have arrived safe at the exit more quickly as it was they did a zigzag which takes a bit longer but doesn't really do any harm but anyway thank goodness for the teleporter pads we finally got to see something new and different and our imagination has finally been allowed to switch back on again sadly things immediately go back into derivation to be fair not for long no, not for long though yes <laughs> <laughs> Side step left, Alistair, <laughs> out of that door. And again, and again. Where am I? Alistair, you're in a circular room and there's a table in the centre of the room with some objects on it. There's two window there's a window in the room. It looks like a doorway, that's the way you go. Yeah, it looks like yeah, it looks like it might be a doorway. Can you see the table? Yeah, go around, go around the other side, that's it. What's right. on the table? Oh. There's a dagger, a green gem. An artichoke or something. A piece Poison. of cloth and a bottle. Take the lettuce for food. It's a cabbage, actually. I think. Nope. Oh. <laughs> he actually bothers correcting them that the vegetable on the table isn't a lettuce, but a cabbage. No, considering he said it was an artichoke. He must be heaven to live with. <laughs> you can even hear Tragon grunting with annoyance when he bothers to say, it's not a lettuce, it's a cabbage. It's not a lettuce, it's a cabbage. Fuck you, you thought it was an artichoke. Yeah, that would be even good a better response, wouldn't that? <laughs> it's an item of food, that's all that matters. Put it in your yeah. knapsack. Yeah, put it close in your, your knapsack and then close Chow your down mouth. on your raw cabbage. Yeah, close your knapsack and close your mouth. But anyway, the cabbage does get knapsacked once they've established that it is a cabbage and not a lettuce because difference. The team realised that the emerald is the one Malice was asking for, so they use her calling name to make her appear. Alistair, call out Meris three times. Meris! 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 Well, you took your time, I must say. Still, a bargain is a bargain. I do find Malice an interesting character, mainly because she's such an obvious threat um, and 
she doesn't make any secret about being threatening. She's so busy appearing ruthless a lot of the time she doesn't need to be. But she can be dealt with fair and square, so it's a little unpredictable how dealings of her are going to pan out. A little like Mildred a couple of seasons earlier. You worry all the way through this scene that she might attack at any moment, but give Malice her due. She keeps her word and fulfills her side of the deal in its entirety. She may not be nice about it, but she does what Honor demands of her. As a way of reward for finding the Emerald, Malice gives Alistair the spell Hero. She explains it can be used to summon a warrior from the realm of the dead to his cause. She then explains that she has no further interest in their progress and exit. They also pick up a bottle of poison before moving on. This is quite the most unpromising collection of clue objects I can ever recall in a clue room. A dagger, no use to the blindfold with. A bottle of poison, surely no use to anyone. And a cloth? What are they supposed to do with that? I think it was a handkerchief. A lady's favour. So presumably Melisandre was waiting at the end of level three and was going to fight off the hordes of goblins there on their behalf. The status bar now tells us that it's 49 minutes and we've only just had the second room in level three. And then to make matters worse, the next room is practically the same as the last one. Yeah, Should we take the cloth and the poison? Yeah. Right, silence. Okay. Right, turn around, please. Okay, walk forward. Hold up the eye shield. Hold up the eye shield, yeah. Right. Right, we're just going through a passage. It looks like there's an opening at the end or something. Yeah, there appears to be a doorway. Where am I now? Alistair, you're in a circular room. It looks like there are two exit ways, like in the last room, and a conveyor belt leading off. There's a conveyor belt in the middle. Well, the next room does have something interesting. It does have something of interest in it. So this thing is going to get very exciting again very quickly, but very briefly. Yes. The room itself is exactly the same as the one they just left, only this time there's an entrance to a conveyor corridor in the middle of the back wall. Now, we've seen these before, haven't we? In the end, all that's going to do is just trundle along until you find a door. Don't be too complacent this time, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. A little spoiler for you there. It is the same, and yet it won't be. So it's obvious to the team which direction they have to go in, and after negotiating a skull haunting, they manage to get through. Uh, what follows... Where am I? Alistair, you're on a conveyor belt, travelling along a corridor. And that's about all we can see at the moment. It's like the one that you were in level two. Stay exactly where you are, Alistair. This is most unfair, Master. Oh no! It's the corridor! This has been, to this point, probably the most boring, slow, scrappy, frustrating quest yet. But let's be honest, this scene makes it worth the previous 50 minutes. Now, most fans, of course, don't need a description of what's about to happen. But we'll do it for those people who haven't seen season four. There may be a few of them out there. We don't really need to go into too much detail here because we've been in this place a couple of times before. Basically, he's just standing on a conveyor moving down this corridor that seems to be completely harmless. But just as his advisors finish talking about it, a gigantic, we're talking bigger than the human being in every direction. Circular sore 
buzzes down one of the grooves at the right-hand wall and just barely brushes its way past the top of Alistair's head. It's so close, though, isn't it? It is, and it's moving so fast. We have not seen anything like this on Nightmare before. Even the Hall of Spheres was not like this. And the Hall of Spheres, the spheres stay in the same place and you walk through. Here, you don't control the movement. You're standing still. The conveyor is moving you forward. And these saw blades are flying at you down the wall the other way. You are totally out of control here. There is a reason that this scene was chosen for the Nightmare Convention to play a room of the dungeon. And it still gets used in parody form on the Nightmare Live stage plays today. A second blade that appears on the left one, and this one is around about sort of high height for the dungeon here. So he's going to get cut in two here unless he gets out of the way. And then, so Pickle is uh, slightly overstepping his bounds here, maybe. but. Well, listen to this. Looks like a case of headless or Move to your right, Alistair. Move now. Two steps to stay. Now guide him well, team. Guide him. Pickle hands the floor over to the advisors to guide Alistair through this deadly challenge. I think he's probably a mistake. And the team are now in panic mode. And I don't blame them on this occasion. Right. Alistair, Alistair, side step to your left. Side step to your left. There are blades coming at you. Side step to your right. What a pity. Well, I suppose that's just a slice of life, team. But unfortunately for the team, their panic does send Alistair directly into the path of another blade. They move him over to the left when it's already clear that the blade that's nearest them is going to go overhead and miss him. So they don't actually need to move him. But they move him over to the left, directly into the path of another oncoming blade, and this blade, again, is at thigh height. Unable to move him back quick enough, the circular saw slices right through his midriff, and the second quest of the series is suddenly over. Wow, what a moment that was when I first saw it in 1990. I'm not going to deny... My heart stopped for just a second. It completely <laughs> shocked the hell out of me as I'd been, you know, same thing I was mentioning earlier. I'd been lulled into expecting the corridor to be harmless because of its previous appearances in levels one and two. This scene set the corridor blades as the most famous and most notorious quest killer in the history of the series. Although, if you actually look closely, you notice it only ever actually killed off four Dungeoneers. It wasn't actually uh, nearly as destructive as people think. It's just that it did it with style. It did it with such drama. And it totally transformed the conveyor corridor from just something that's there into something that's really terrifying. I think this team could have got past it if they'd handled it slightly differently in two ways. One, they should have told Alistair to take half a step back on the conveyor because that would give him a bit of extra space. Two, they needed to worry less about blades at head height as it's clear that Alistair is just a bit too short for them to hit him. So only worry about the blades coming around at thigh height and that wouldn't have been so bad. One bad bit that almost but not quite spoils um, the moment is Treyguard's line about that just a slice of life team characteristically grim humor but in this instance corny rather than funny it was nice to hear him saying oh dear what a pity once again and again not really meaning it out of nowhere we've suddenly got some really quite good stuff right in the last few chambers there to suddenly make you feel rather sorry that the quest has come to an end. <laughs> it's it suddenly found fourth gear just as it was ending but what do we think of the team mr h they they weren't the worst no. They definitely were nowhere near the best. 
they could have done with agreeing on one person to give directions, for Absolutely. instance. The shouting over each other was very irritating. The guy with the red hair was the only one who really seemed to have any of the brains. But even he tried to convince them to take the magnifying glass rather than the uh, rather obvious thing that they needed. As a team, they're not good to watch. That's not necessarily to say they're a bad team. I mean, you, you could sort of say that this is the Wimbledon Football Club of Nightmare because even though they're irritating to watch, you can't say they're actually bad at dungeoneering because they did reach level three. But you don't really like them very much you know, you know, their bickering is incredibly irritating you, you get the thing these are the noisy kids in the classroom that keep on disrupting things when you're making a genuine effort to listen to your teacher and as for Alistair I'm, I'm sure he's grown into a lovely bloke today genuinely but back in 1990 Alistair was quite one of the most unpleasant dungeoneers we'd yet encountered and the poor organisation of the advisors was maddening in a strange way it was almost a pity they got as far as they did and used up so much time that other teams might have used a bit more smoothly here's a question for you had this been series three do you think they would have got this far no not even close i think they wouldn't have got far beyond the level two clue room in season three still getting to level three is getting to level three and even if that achievement does seem a bit easier this season than in the last that can't be taken away from them they did in the end get to the business end of the quest and there's only one thing left to do spell casting d-i-s-m I-S-S. So farewell, Harry, Martin, James. You'll see we've returned Alistair to you in one piece. You were sharp enough, team, but then so was the dungeon. The path behind you leads homeward. No blades on that one. What a shame. I really did think they'd go all the way. Now, anyone at the door, Pickle? Yes, Master. There's someone at the doorstep. There's somebody 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 at the doorstep. Our latest Dungeoneer announces her name is Nikki Cook, which Pickle uses is a peculiar sort of name. I think you better call your advisors quickly. Karina, Emma, Catherine. Ah, and who guides this Dungeoneer? Karina Dewhurst, Emma Gore, Catherine Bennett. Oh, and where do you all come from, Nikki? Uh, St Albans in Hertfordshire. Now, eagle-eyed viewers might recognise Catherine in adulthood as TV and film actress Catherine Bennett Fox. She's perhaps best known as the absolutely pant-wetly scary person in the anti-fraud advert from Barclays. Thank you for taking my call. Before we continue, could you say the first and third digits of your security pin? Oh, I didn't catch that. Sorry. That's the second and fourth, please. Okay, lovely. All gone through. (laughs) Did you see what I did there? It's a scam. Never reveal your full security pin, even if you think it's your bank calling. Learn how to protect yourself from fraud. 
obviously she learned that from Nightmare. She learned it from watching Hugo. I had actually had no idea she was an actress these days, but according to IMDb, she's in EastEnders at the moment, playing someone called Melissa. Um, and a couple of years ago, she appeared in the TV version of Four Weddings and a Funeral. So congratulations, Catherine, I guess. If the new Nightmare project does get up and running, maybe she'd like to play a dungeon character. There'd be a wonderful irony in that. She could play somebody like Romana or maybe Gwendolyn. I don't know. Trigard checks Knapsack before handling it over to Nikki. Yeah, that joke is getting tiresome very, very quickly. He briefly explains the rules, places the helmet on her head, and sends her on her way. I'm quite proud of that jingle. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Moving on. Yep. <laughs> Before Nikki can even utter the immortal words, where am I? Oh dear, we've been disrupted. What a shame, because they'd hardly begun, really. Still, we'll be able to test their metal properly next week. What are you doing, Pickle? It's their master. I don't like them staring. <laughs> you silly sprite. Don't you realise, if they weren't here, we wouldn't be here. Well, you know that, don't you? Yes. Well, just make sure you remember it. This week, the titles play over grainy footage of a dungeoneer walking through the woods and castles. It's basically a precursor to the Blair Witch Project. And there's several monsters and beasties interspersed, including what looks to be a prototype puka. I think the dungeoneer in that uh, credit sequence was a nephew of one of the production crew, if I remember rightly. I heard it was Tim Child's kid. It might be. I can't remember if the nephew was the one who was in the Dungeon Doom pilot and the kid was too young at that point or if it was the other way around. He was in one of them and the nephew of one of the production crew was in the other. Ariadne, by the way, is allowed to move freely here and played at full speed. She's much, much scarier. I don't think that's Ariadne. It might be somebody else here. Yeah. This is a bit like the version of the titles that you use in season six to eight. Um, and then it gives a very unrealistic idea of how fast and well-coordinated engineers can be. Yeah. <laughs> but it is quite a good sequence. You may notice, if you're listening carefully, that it's actually a shortened version of the music as well. And it seems to have been sped up a bit as well. So what do we think of the episode? There aren't too many scenes in it. I only think there's a, it's about nine scenes long. In terms of how much it covers, it's quite a slow-moving thing. But what it introduces um, that's new and deviates from the previous quest is fantastic. You've got the transporter pads, which is a really imaginative floor puzzle and uh, really quite cleverly realised. And of course, you've got the Corridor of Blades, which has one of the most exciting and dramatic death sequences ever. So that immediately raises um, the episode to above average, even if the rest of the episode actually is pretty far for the course. It certainly is saved by those two. The rest of it is sort of very obviously 
recycled from the first quest yeah and also has an irritating team with that in mind if those two scenes went in there we'd be saying it's a bloody awful episode but because those two scenes are in there it suddenly hits the heights of just above mediocre they've been irritating throughout the entire quest but they're killed off just before they become unwatchably irritating yeah I think that's fair. So that is Season 4, Episode 5. And you can follow us on X, Twitter, or whatever elongated muskrat is calling his personal vanity site by the time this goes out. We're at Nightmare Pod. If you're on Mastodon, you can find us at topspicy.social forward slash at Nightmare Pod. Our Mastodon was set up well after this episode was recorded and I'm currently editing this at 2 a.m. to meet the deadline, hence these text-to-speech inserts. Unasty and all that. If you want to support the podcast, we're Nightmare Pods on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, here to shout out to keepers of the book requests, David N. Rabbit, Paul McIntosh, Peter Pulsford, and Scott Evans. With advisors Benjamin Bloom, David Thompson, and Peter Sidorn. And Dungeoneer Peter Courage. Support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned on the podcast. High-level perks also receive merchandise, have access to exclusive episodes, and if you pledge as the Keeper of the Book of Quests, we'll even offer you the chance to be a guest on the podcast. Our website is nightmarepods.co.uk. If you're looking for temporal discussion merchandise, including t-shirts, stickers, and other products, it's at nightmarepod.redbubble.com. You can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk. And just keep telling yourself. It's only a pocket. Oh, f- <laughs> They're going to sort that out in the dub. <laughs> Did you see what I did there?